This is the RSM Orthopedic Section Podcast. We feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. My name is Akib Khan, and I'm an orthopedic registrar on the Section Council, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Welcome. I'm really pleased today to be joined by Professor Dan Perry, um, who is a NIHR research professor and works with the University of Liverpool, the University of Oxford, and performs surgery at Alderhey Children's Hospital in Liverpool. He has a particular interest in epidemiology and effectiveness research and has developed nationwide collaborative cohorts, clinical trials, and analysis of existing data sets. He is a member of the NIHR HDA commissioning board and is an associate editor of the Bone and Joint Journal. He also sits on the research committee of the BOA, British Society for Children's Orthopedic Surgery, and the Hip Screening Committee within the government's newborn infant physical examination program. Thank you very much for joining us today on the RSM podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've delivered a really, really interesting talk, and you've covered two main areas, uh, one being the developmental dysplasia of the hip, and the second being um, the slipped upper femoral epiphysis. Uh, which are problems that we see in quite a few children in this country. And what I'd like to do today is cover those uh, concepts and what you've mentioned in your talk. So the first question is, what is DDH? Okay, so, so DDH is developmental dysplasia of the hip. Um, so the old name for it was congenital dislocation of the hip. Um, and it was the, the name was kind of changed to reflect the fact that, that perhaps the hip may drift out after someone's um, born. If I'm honest, I don't really believe that. I think they're they're largely congenital. Well, I think that I think they're I think it is a congenital disease. So I th- I think it is a congenital dislocation in the hip. And I know I know Professor Eastwood, who's one of your other guests, also shares that view. So so these are hips that are dislocated at birth. Um, um, uh, on the whole, um, it, it, there is a spectrum of disease. So 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 DDH also encompasses the fact that that that, that there is dysplasia. So. So, so whilst you have some hips that are completely dislocated, there are some hips that, that uh, are just, uh, uh, just a wee bit dysplastic. So, so uh, either immature or, or, or pathologically dysplastic. Uh, and they're also the ones that we need to keep an eye on. But the screening program is all about the dislocated hips. Brilliant. We're going to come on to the screening program. One of the things that I found really interesting during your talk was how you mentioned that um, hips dislocate more on one side compared to the other and how that's related to how babies lie in their mother's wombs or possibly related to that. Um, perhaps you could share that with um, our audience. Yeah. So, so it's, um, so it's a, a left-sided disease, which is, which is kind of, kind of peculiar. So, um, so about, two, so of the uni, unilateral cases, um, so two thirds of the unilateral cases are on the left side um, with one third on the right side. Um, and that's because um, um, we believe uh, most commonly, so so babies lie uh, uh, is right occipital anterior, which puts the um, puts the 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 mum's or which puts the baby's leg against the stiff spine uh, of the of the mum. So so the, the the baby's the baby's leg on the left side is against the mum's stiff side, a uh, stiff spine, and on the right side it's mum against mum's um, floppy belly, um, and so floppy belly just kind of molds to the shape of the uh, the shape of the leg, but the stiff stiff spine levers the hip out of place and that's what causes um the the, the fact it's more common on the left hand side brilliant and it kind of ties into the whole idea of actually this is a condition that's probably present at birth um, although 
obviously that's a matter of um, philosophy, I guess, depending on who you talk to. Um, uh, I think I think it was changed for medical legal purposes, but but yeah, and also to encompass, encompass the fact that you know that there is a spectrum of disease from the frankly dislocated to the to the dysplastic. Brilliant. Let's move on to the screening programs. So um, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about these. My, my first question is: Are we overdiagnosing problems with the hip? Uh, so that's that's a really difficult um, it's a really difficult question, and and there's not an easy answer. So my belief for sure is that we're underdiagnosing dislocated hips. So the hips that really need us to see them, we're, we're certainly missing them. So in my clinical practice, uh, uh, what well, in the clinical practice at Alder Hay, we treat about 40 babies a year with late presenting dislocated hips. So, so a really big number of um, uh, a big big number of hips that are late presenting, um, and they're, they're they're missed by screening. Um, but at the same time, there's lots of very minor abnormalities, um, so very minor dysplastic hips that I know at Alder Hay, and in fact at every other children's hospital up and down the country, they get treated that will probably resolve themselves. So the difficulty and one of the challenges of the screening program is that we're missing the babies we actually need to see, but then we're seeing too many of the babies that we, we probably don't need to see. And that's one of the big challenges in screening. And that's, that's why there's so much controversy around it. And that's why there, there isn't any agreement at the moment of the best way to screen. Sure. And, but in your, own, in your own practice, and I guess through national guidelines as well, which, which you're, you're involved in, um, in terms of the newborn infant physical examination program, all these things. is there an optimal time? When, when should people be screening these kids? Yeah, sure. And, and this, is where, this is where I start getting daggers thrown at me from, from all angles. Um, but because, um, so, so is there an optimal time? So, so we certainly know that, that, that there's some hips. Uh, so when babies are first born, um, uh, there, there can be hips which are very, very, very dysplastic um, uh, that will normalize on their own um, uh, up to about six weeks. Um, and the, the, there's some discussion and debate about what those, you know, how, how bad those hips can be. But, but certainly there's bad hips at first that get better by themselves. Um, so if we run a screening program where we scan everyone at birth, the, 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 the chances are that we're going to pick up a lot of abnormality that will resolve itself. My belief, therefore, is that if we're going to have a universal screening program, so if we're going to screen everyone, then the best time to screen them is a little bit later. So a little bit later, when those abnormalities that are going to resolve themselves resolve themselves, uh, and then we can screen them at some point uh, between four and six weeks um, would be my preference on a national screening system. Um, and I think broadly people kind of could accept that. But but one of the challenges we've got at the moment, we've got this kind of halfway house where we've got a selective screening program. So some kids get an ultrasound scan, some kids don't get an ultrasound scan. And there's there's kind of no perfect world on, you know, who and why and how and stuff <laughs> so it's that degree of variation that that seems to creep through in, in so many other aspects of orthopedics as well um and absolutely um i guess one of the things that we will be talking about in a bit is what's coming up in ddh but before we we get there let's let's go through this methodically and let's talk about the identification so we spoke you spoke a bit about ultrasound scanning um during your talk and is, is there anything key that we need to know about ultrasound scanning um, so, well, so ultrasound scan is the, the, second, the second part of the, the screening program. So, so obviously you all know that the first part of the screening program is, starts with the, the initial examination, which, which starts before the child leaves hospital. So all, all children get their, 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 their leg lengths assessed, um, uh, look for abduction at hips and, and look for 
Ortolani and Barlow manoeuvre. And the only way I remember to distinguish between Ortolani and Barlow is Barlow's a bad guy. Uh, there is a different word for a bad guy, but if you remember Barlow's a bad guy, then you remember that he dislocates hips. And Ortolani is a hero um, and he saves hips. So, um, so if you've got an abnormal, um, uh, an abnormal risk factor or an abnormal screening examination, um, then you get an ultrasound scan. Um, in terms of ultrasound scans, that there's, uh, see, see, orthopedics is a pickle, isn't it? There's even debates about how you do the ultrasound scans. So, so there's two different philosophies of, of ultrasound scan, essentially. One's a static examination and one's a dynamic examination. And a static examination is kind of the graph technique. Um, uh, and, and the graph technique um, broadly takes a static image of the hip uh, and looks uh, in a perfect plane. So in a perfect, uh, uh, so, uh, uh, so there's a particular view that you have to look at. Uh, and then from that, you can tell if the hip's in or out, which is the first most important thing to look at. So is it, is it, um, dis or is it um, uh, centered or decentered? And from that, um, what most people look at next is what, what the alpha angle is. So what, how, how deep the socket is essentially. And for us, they're the two things that actually matter. And then there's lots of other things, kind of lots of other bits written about it. But I think they're a lot less important. And um, again, I'll be shocked for saying one of these things in such simplest terms. Um, brilliant. Let's let's move on to the treatment options then. So we've identified that this this child has um, DDH. How do we treat these children? And I know there's a protocol, and there's a very very good protocol in Alderhey. Um, and I know it's quite big, but maybe if you could summarize a few of the key aspects for us and our listeners, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So, so protocols are, uh, so, so we, our, our care is completely protocolized and that's because um, the doctors are kept away from it, which is probably the best place for, for DDH care. So, so our, our, our treatments completely run by um, uh, nurse practitioners and, and physio practitioners who, who, who manage our DDH clinics for us. Essentially what happens if, if you've got a newborn baby who, um, uh, so, so we, we follow the pathway, um, the, 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 the national pathway. Uh, and so if there's a baby that's scanned, um, according to the pathway between four and six weeks, if it's got um, a completely dislocated hip, uh, then, it, then we initiate treatment and we initiate treatment with a pavlic harness. Um, so, so, and that's, that's a hip that's decentered um, and um, uh, we, we initiate treatment with a, with a harness. If the hip's centered, but the acetabulum's very dysplastic, um, so, so again, between four and six weeks, if it's very dysplastic, say more than, uh, uh, more than 50 degrees dysplastic, uh, then certainly we'll be starting a harness straight away. Um, if, um, if it's a 2A hip, so if it's between 50 and 60 degrees um, uh, uh, of, of dysplasia, then, then we'll be having, or the alpha angles between 50 and 60 degrees, then we'll be having a rescan. And our rescan happens at, at three months. And, and if they're still dysplastic at three months, uh, then, uh, then we'll, we'll consider treatment. Um, I say consider because we always used to treat it, but then, but then even more stuff happens and people throw in papers and controversy and confusion <laughs> and Nature Scientific Reports published a paper which, which says that actually for, for, those, for those dysplastic stable hips, treatment probably doesn't make any difference. Um, and so, so it all depends on kind of the consultant treating the child and you know, what the nurse thinks. And it's all a bit more, it's a bit more difficult, but essentially the key time points are, are that four to six week time point. And if it's, if it's really horrible at that point, we'll treat them. And if it's not really horrible at that point, then we'll wait till three months. And at three months, we'll, um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make a definitive decision about the, the kind of in-between hips. Brilliant. Now you mentioned the paper there. 
I guess there's a lot of research going on. What future research is coming up in DDH? Yeah, so, so there's not a lot of research going on. That's the pickle, isn't it? Um, so, so children's orthopaedic research is, is, is largely an evidence-free zone, or at least it has been till the last few years. What's kind of cool and what's exciting is that um, the NIHR, so National Institute of Health Research, uh, have just given me some money as part of a research professorship. And my research professorship was to, was to try and revolutionise, change, whatever word you want to use to make it sexy, the way that we look at DDH care. Um, and so, so what, what we've got now is in, in England, there's a national computer system. So every time that HIP's examined as part of the, the, uh, the NIPE pathway, the person, the person doing the examination has to say why they've examined the HIP, what, what their examination findings were, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then when the consultant treats them, they have to enter details about the case. So they have to enter details about um, uh, whether the HIP was normal or abnormal. Um, and so we've got this, this pathway and it's actually mandatory. Um, it's, it's a mandatory pathway. At the moment, it doesn't collect a lot of useful information, but we've, there's a big move within the NHS to use routine data, and we've got we've got quite a lot of cash now, and, and a lot of impetus from from NHSX, NHS Digital, and all the kind of big guys within the the, the NIP screening committee to say let's change this uh, and let's start collecting useful information. And once we start collecting useful information, we can do something really cool. And the really cool thing is to start randomizing within that system, and so we can have multiple points of randomization. We can randomize about the type of uh, the type of examination, so whether we do um, whether we do a, a clinical examination, whether you do an ultrasound examination at the, the beginning, and then later on in the pathway, you can randomize between the types of treatment. So whether you use a, a pavlet harness or a fixed abduction brace and, and whatever. So what's really, really cool is that, that, that that's 600,000 babies a year. So, so we can do routine trials of 600,000 babies a year in a really simple way that's kind of mandatory and it's going to be cool. Um, and so if you want evidence in children's orthopedics, that's going to be the best evidence that we can possibly ever give. Uh, and it's going to uh, and it's going to change treatment of DDH in the, throughout the world. So that's my next five years. That's really exciting. So in five years from now, hopefully we'll have a lot more answers for the questions we currently have no evidence for, I guess. Well, uh, yeah, I hope so, particularly because the outcomes are so short. You know, a lot of my trials, are, you know, we collect patients over over months and months and months and then wait for a couple of years for the outcome. But these outcomes are like in a few months. This is really cool. This is, you know, if you can do trials in this, you can get, get Lancet New England Journal papers that really, really fast. It's cool. Brilliant. On that note, let's move on to talking about um, slipped up ephemeral epiphysis. So uh, what is SUFI? And so, is SUFI caused by obesity? Oh, okay, cool. So SUFI is slipped upper femoral epiphysis or slipped capital femoral epiphysis. It depends if you're in England or, 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 or not in England, I think, as the case may be nowadays. So I think everyone's pretty much adopted Skiffy. Um, so, so it's, a, uh, so it's a, uh, an injury through the growth plate, um, so through the hypertrophic zone, um, typically of the, uh, of the proximal femoral physis, uh, where the, 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 the head of the femur stays in place, but the metaphysis slips anteriorly relative to that. Um, and it can happen all of a sudden, or it can be a chronic thing. So there's, there's kind of different ways you can classify Sufi. Um, is it caused by obesity? Um, so the major risk factor for, for Sufi is obesity, obesity, obesity. Is it caused by obesity? Yes, it is. Um, and, and we can say it is. So, so there's, there's, there's a few different ways that you can say something's caused by something and you have to have really, really robust criteria called the Bradford Hill criteria if you remember your med school days. Um, and so, 
so we've always kind of known there's an association between obesity and um, between Sufi. But the only way you can properly prove it is to look at kids before they've got Sufi and then follow them up in the future um, to see um, to, to see what their risk of Sufi is. Uh, and we were able to do that in Scotland. So we looked at a cohort of, I can't remember how many, 500,000 kids or some, it may even be more than that. Um, uh, we, we looked at a massive cohort of kids in, in Scotland. Uh, and the reason we did Scotland is because Scotland are kind of cool, but don't tell the Scottish that. Um, so, so they're kind of cool though, um, because they um, because they measure the height and weight of five and six year olds as they start school, um, which is great because they put that on a computer system uh, and they link that to to their to their Chi number, which is their NHS number. So I can then I can then take all that big cohort of kids and look in future and say, okay, we've got their height and weight of five and six years old. Let's see which of those get Sufi. Um, and 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 that was really really cool and really really beautiful. And it, it allowed us to to see the the future risk of Sufi in those five and six year olds. And if you were if you were a beast, so if you were if you were like uh, if if you were uh, I, I think the actual term is super morbidly obese. So if your if your obesity level was um, was more than three standard deviations above the normal uh, when you're five and six years old, um, compared to someone three standard well compared to someone two standard deviations below the normal, your risk of Sufi was twenty times more than the other people. And it was a beautiful curve. It was like it was a beautiful dose response curve that 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 got me really really excited. Uh, and 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 I compared people. Um, more than three standard deviations above above normal to to less than two standard deviations above normal, simply because I wanted to compare less than three standard deviations, but there was just no one with Sufi once you got into the really small, like the really, really light people, that there just wasn't Sufi existing in that population. So it only started to exist when you got kind of approached my kind of near normal weight, uh, and then it just rapidly took off. So um, so I don't believe it's, you know, it's not the only cause. Um, um, I guess it's a bit like lung cancer and smoking, you know, uh, smoking causes lung cancer, but, but, you know, the, there's, there's people who get lung cancer and never smoked. Um, uh, but, but it's still the cause. So yes, it is the cause. Is it the only cause? You know, probably not, but, but, you know, in comparison to every other risk factor you read in the books, um, it, it, it's the cause, it, it, you know, it's obesity. Thank you. That's really clear. Now, as a trainee, what should I be aware of in regards to diagnosis and management of these children? Um, so I, I think the main thing you need to be aware of is, well, the main thing you need to be aware of is, is, is Sufi. Um, so, so Sufi carries a, a huge medical legal risk, um, not only to orthopedic surgeons, also to A&E staff and to GPs. Um, and the reason it carries such a big risk is, is that it's got really bad consequences. So, so, uh, a chronic Sufi uh, isn't so bad, I guess. But if your chronic Sufi suddenly becomes an acute Sufi, you've got a really, really big risk of AVN. And your 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 once you've got um, so so we know from the Lotus paper that that uh, an, uh, that um, an acute slip, so a, so an unstable slip rather, an unstable slip has got a, a, a approaching fifty percent chance of, of AVN, which which would make a huge huge payout um, uh, medical legally. Um, if if there was an opportunity to detect it beforehand, so whenever you're examining a kid with with hip pain, thigh pain, knee pain, you've always got to think Sufi. So if you're seeing someone certainly who's over ten years old or ten years or older, then I always want you to be thinking: Do I need to get a frog lateral of the hip? Because my standard approach, whenever I've got someone with knee pain or hip pain or thigh pain, 
is to get a frog lateral hip without even thinking about it. And then if, if they're under 10 years old, I don't generally get a frog lateral because it's not usually helpful to me, um, except if someone is, is kind of very, very obese or, or I, I, I've really kind of, if they've got very restricted internal rotation, I'm, I'm really questioning the fact they've got Sufi. Doing frog laterals for like four, five, six-year-olds, you know, that, that's not helpful. That, that's not going to help your diagnosis in any which way. Um, but, but, you know, t- 10 years and above, the, you know, you need to be thinking frog all the time uh, and making sure you know a diagnosis. Thank you. And then let's say we're in the unfortunate situation where um, we do have a child who has um, a slipped uh, capital femoral How do we actually manage them operatively? Um, what are the options? Okay, so, so there's lots of questions around it. Um, and um, so, so what you need to remember firstly is that the, the average hospital manages two slipped capital femoral cases a year in the UK. So, so it's kind of rare. And it's it's rare for for everyone except the big children's hospitals, um, and so so if you've got any doubt, then then I don't think you should hesitate to pick up a phone to a big children's hospital and say, look, you know, please will you please will you help me or please will you take over this this skiffy? I, I think that's I think that's fair game. And I think most people would agree with that. There's the on the whole, so the 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 majority of stable slips and the, the majority the kid can walk when they first come into ED. Um, so, so 80% are stable, 20% are unstable. Um, uh, and of the, the stable slips, the majority are, are relatively mild. The mild stable slips uh, are, are relatively easily treated. They need a single screw um, that's, uh, that, that's perpendicular to the physis, which is anchoring um, that physis in place and stopping it slipping further. Um, having said that, that's not necessarily easy. Um, and your entry point's different to your entry point if you're if you're doing cannulated screws in an adult hip because it's you know the, the hip slips so the, your entry point's more anterior even in the mild slips, and actually the, the risk of complications is actually often higher in the in the mild slips because you're forced to go a little bit a little bit more inferior and the, the risk of fractures um, conversely higher for the for the mild slips than it is for the, the severe slips, but but as I say the the, the mild slips are the, the ones that I think are best best managed if you're going to manage them in 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 dgh hospitals um and the standard approach is to i, I pin it on a traction table uh like like uh, like you would for for a dhs but just remembering your your entry points different thank you and quickly should we pin the other hip as well uh so should you pin the other hip um so the, there's huge amounts of debate on whether you should pin the other hip or not and uh you can you can make whatever argument you want for that uh, on the day. Um, the evidence that's coming out from the BOSS study, which um, is going to publish soon, uh, will say that um, you should, um, certainly if the kid is um, younger than 12 and a half years old, um, you should seriously consider pinning the opposite side. Thank you very much. Um, now, you used a very powerful um, phrase during your talk, which was harness the power of growth in young children. Um, in terms of one of the one of the management options, uh, what did you actually mean by that? Okay, cool. So, so this this relates to those peculiar cases of Sufi. So we've talked about the the mild uh, the mild chronic slips, um, and and I think they can be managed anywhere. But there's there's ones that I think should be managed in a in a children's hospital, um, and that's because that there's different controversies and there's different things that that you can do, which isn't necessarily going to be available everywhere. Uh, and so one of them is about the severe slips and particularly in young kids 
Um, we know that in little kids, we, we often, um, uh, as children's orthopedic surgeons, use growth. So we use, we do um, hemiopathesis, we do um, uh, different operations to, to, to make children grow straight or make children grow the right way. So one of the opportunities we've got now is to use growing screws. So we can have a, 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 a severe slip um, and instead of putting a normal screw in, we'll put a reverse screw in. So, so instead of the instead of the threads being right um, at the end, uh, the threads are more proximal. Um, and what that means is that um, the, the end of the screw is completely smooth. So over time, the, the, the child, um, uh, as the hip grows, it, it's, the, there's nothing tethering um, the growth plate. Uh, and that means that the growth plate continues to grow. And as it grows, um, it grows into a normal shape. Uh, and so I've got some really, really beautiful examples of really horrible slits, capital femoral epiphysis, um, like really, really severe in kids who are seven, eight. Um, uh, and then we've put these growing screws in, and albeit you have to change it a couple of times, so, so they grow off the screw. Uh, and so sometimes you're doing two or three ex screw exchanges during their life. But if you watch it really, really closely, they grow and develop a beautifully normal hip. And it's amazing. It's really cool. So... Um, so, so I think you know that's a that's a real a real reason why you should use your children's orthopedic surgeons locally because you know they they've they, they've either got the growing screws on the shelf or they've they've got access to them uh, and, and that's a you know that's a really cool possibility um, and the other the other ones that are particularly troublesome are the severe slips uh, sorry the well, so so that's sorry that's for the um, uh, that's for particularly the young patients with the severe slip for the older patients with the severe slip um, then there's lots of debate around whether you do um, what sort of osteotomy you do, whether you whether you try and um, uh, correct the Sufi straight away by by doing a surgical dislocation, or 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 um, uh, whether you do a, an anterior approach to the hip and, and try and correct it that way, um, or uh, or whether you just pin it in situ and try doing a, a subcapital osteotomy um, later on, um, because it, because it's a well anterior osteotomy later on because it's a safer approach, uh, and then for the unstable slips, there's controversy about those. Um, uh, so, so yeah, there's controversy everywhere you turn in children's orthopedics, but, but, but that's why I think in the community, stable, mild, moderate slips can be, can be managed, but, but beyond that, there's too much controversy and, and, and send it to, to people who like the controversy. Brilliant. I think what we can do now is actually just talk a little bit about trials and research, um, and not necessarily just about DDH and, and Skiffy, um, but, I know that you're involved in a lot of pediatric orthopedic trials, and I just wanted you to perhaps say a few words to our listeners as to whether there are any trials they should be aware of and why should they recruit to big trials like these? Oh, because, because I've just, oh, like there's so much controversy. It's so stressful. Like the whole of orthopedic surgery is just stressful because we, because mostly we're just guessing and it's just a bit bonkers. Um, and then you try and have reasonable conversations with parents and, and they ask a, a reasonable question like, you know, what's the risk or, or which should we do? And you're like, I don't really know. And it's just a bit embarrassing now. So, um, so, so yeah, there's, there's loads and loads and loads going on. In fact, we've just had a trial funded about, um, about Skiffy. So, so about those severe slips. Um, so asking the question, whether we pin it in situ and do a later subcapital osteotomy or whether we do a, uh, an acute correction. So it's going to be a really tough trial. But we're kind of getting good at tough trials now. We've got trials of medial epicondyl fractures, whether we do surgery or don't do surgery, um, which is recruiting really well. We've got 156 kids recruited. And it's a really tough trial. Like to get to get parents to agree to, to randomize between surgery and no surgery is kind of tough. 
Um, but we've got 70 hospitals in the UK all signed up. We've got uh, 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 Sydney, uh, uh, Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, Auckland and Invercargill um, uh, all joining on the, us on that study. And we've actually just got that study in, funded in the US as well. So we've got an NIH grant in the US um, that's given us $7 million um, to run that study over there. So, so, so kind of the world is watching how we're doing it. Um, the study is about distal radius fractures. So, so we've just finished the FORCE trial, which was about very minor distal radius fractures. The one that's scaring everyone at the moment is the Craft study, uh, which is about, about really nasty displaced distal radius fractures in little kids. And the question is, do we actually need to do anything or can we just put them in a cast? And people are terrified and I've got all sorts of I've got all sorts of anxious people all over the place um, uh, that, that, are, that are constantly on the phone to me saying, are you sure this is right? But the pictures are amazing. People keep sending, people keep putting pictures on the WhatsApp group of, of arms remodeling. And honestly, it's overwhelming. Um, so, so I kind of, you know, after the craft trial, I think everything is possible. So, so yeah, so we've got, we've got science, which is about made up of condyles. We've got uh, force, which was about distal radius um, buckle fractures. We've got craft, which is about, uh, uh, severe distal radius fractures. We've got a new one called odd socks, which is about uh, displaced distal tibial fractures. We've got big boss, which is about severe Sufi. Uh, we've got the new DDH stuff coming out. Um, and, and I think the NHR are just about to advertise a perphase disease trial. I can't even keep up with it now. It's so exciting. Brilliant. I think on that note, we'll draw this um, episode to a close. Um, thank you so much for giving up your time. I know that it's really precious with all the studies and everything that's happening. So we're really grateful to have you here on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.